a way to increase the number of bucks and the number of big bucks is to limit opportunity, to go limit a quota. I don't think that's a secret, but there are extreme ramifications to that, to your opportunity and uh, especially new hunters, young hunters, opportunities to get interested in deer hunting. And, um, you know, like you said, point creep, things like that. Do you ever draw it? Um, if you don't hunt deer for five years, do you know how to hunt deer good enough to actually find and harvest one of those big deer? And these are all social decisions that deer hunters have to make about what they want management to do. They have absolutely no effect on population trajectory anything this is all about just buck ratios and how many bucks are out there it, it does not change the deer population at all Rockcast is powered by Onyx Hunt, and for good reason. Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app in the industry. Stay tuned for a Rockcast promo code. Sportsmen and professional wildlife managers are concerned about declining trends in mule deer throughout western North America. The preponderance of evidence suggests landscape scale changes in habitats since the 1950s are the leading cause, with no jurisdiction being excluded from the decline. During the post-1950s era, significant change occurred in both predator and hunter management, but declines in the quantity and quality of mule deer habitats are generally considered by leading mule deer biologists to be the major driving force leading to the range-wide decline. Despite the obvious connection between population trends and habitat conditions, hunters and managers continue to advocate other strategies such as harvest management schemes ranging from conservative bucks-only hunting to antler point regulations. Too often, overly simplistic solutions are looked upon to fix very complex problems. Wildlife management agencies have devised and evaluated harvest management prescriptions for deer and elk as long as the wildlife management profession has existed. In fact, several management prescriptions have been attempted repetitively on what seems to be a cyclical basis, including the use of antler point regulations. Good morning, rock sliders. That was an excerpt from a critical review of mule deer antler point regulations, application and effectiveness authored in part by today's guest. He earned his master's degree in wildlife management and range science from Montana State University in 2000. He worked as a wildlife tech for Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks from 1993 to 2001, and as a wildlife biologist for the Idaho Fishing Game from 2001 to 2007. And currently, he is a wildlife biologist for the Wyoming Game and Fish, where he's been since 2007. Please welcome my friend, Jeff Short. Good morning, Jeff. Good morning, Robbie. Did you catch that bear? Yeah, we, we did get it caught. It took a little while. All right, black bear? Yeah, uh, just a young black bear that was ca causing problems at cabins. 
All right. All right. And uh, last time we talked, uh, you were uh, you were doing antelope surveys. I guess that was kind of later in June, early July. Uh, what did you see out there? Have we got any antelope left? Yeah, we do. It, it's uh, not as bad as uh, I thought it would be in some areas after this really tough winter. Um, but it was really spotty. Some places did quite well where those antelope could move away from some of the higher elevation winter ranges and some places did pretty poorly. That was a very, very bad winter. The worst I've ever seen. Um, some people think it's the worst one we've had in 50 to 70 years. Yeah, I would, I would concur at least in my lifetime of paying attention. I don't remember it going longer than what this one did. You know, I remember having a severe conditions, but it just hung on and hung on. And, uh, yeah, yep. And the, the severity on the winter ranges and the lower elevations was what was amazing. And, and like you say, how, how early it started and how long it hung on. Well, we got, I'm glad we got guys like you out there, uh, uh surveying and, and seeing what's out there. And that's been similar to my experience so far. What are we late July? I've been um, out for on and off for about a month and some place, and I'm talking deer, not antelope, uh, some places just, I don't want to say normal. There's definitely less deer, but better than what I thought, really, really better than what I thought. And, but then like it is other places. And I saw this after the 16, 17 winter, no deer, none, yeah, zero. Yeah. Like there's none in this area <laughs> that I can even find, you know, and it's, it's uh, just, always interesting how how winter affects these different habitats and you know just one canyon may do terrible and then just a mile or two away for whatever whatever's the difference open slopes or maybe there's some ag ground available those deer do okay and yeah, sounds like antelope was the same yeah and we've been seeing the same thing with deer around here that that spotty distribution yeah well, at least we have some good seed coming up and uh, great conditions. I, I don't ever remember it being this green this late in July around here. Yeah, it's amazing what it looks like. And, and it continues to rain. It just rained here yesterday. Yeah, I mean, that's just that's just a blessing to, ha to have that. And, you know, because you can get a hard winter and then just go right into drought and, and not heal up anything. And uh, right. yeah, here we are doing pretty good. So... The future's bright. At least I have to tell myself that. So I guess we'll see. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to have you on because I've, I've seen your paper that you did. I think you uh, you said it was you know over a decade ago on antler point restrictions, and uh, you know I've, I've I've read it in part over the years, but really dove into it for this podcast. And uh, antler point restrictions are always a, a hot topic in the different states. A lot of controversy, uh, a lot of myth, a lot of legend. Um, you know, the good, the bad, the ugly, all, all that stuff seems to follow this discussion around. And uh, when I came across your paper, the first thing I noticed is I, I call it your paper because I know you. And right. uh, uh, but it was a multi-author white, white paper. And uh, what was your level of participation in the paper? I see multiple authors on there. Um, so myself and Mark Zorns, uh, another biologist with Wyoming, authored that paper and there was a couple other folks that uh helped do some proofreading and stuff but it was primarily 
Mark and I, and and usually when we write papers like that, we kind of split up duties. So I did a lot of the research stuff and um, kind of putting the meat and potatoes in there, and then Mark doing a lot of wordsmithing and organizing. So that was pretty much Mark and I that wrote that. All right, understood. And and then you came to Wyoming in two thousand seven. So obviously you did this paper after uh, after you moved to Wyoming. And I'm assuming this was Wyoming's kind of deep dived into four point, or excuse me, into antler point restrictions. I, I'm assuming this was something to do with Wyoming taking that on over a decade ago. Yeah, it's uh, like you said, it's a, a controversial thing. Um, a lot of public sentiment about it. So this was something that we were asked to do um, to evaluate the regulation. And I, I looked it up. It was done in 2011. Okay. And the interesting thing is, is as I looked through my computer files, I found probably six to eight different smaller white papers that I had written about this same subject over the years. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it certainly gets a, a lot of attention. Well, that's why I wanted to grab you and pull you on the podcast is, um, you know, this this comes up in, in all states. It's not just a Western issue in all states, yep. an antler point restriction. And like I try to do on the podcast is just ask the questions of do, do these different things make a difference or do they do what we think they're going to do, or are they unintended consequences? And, you know, if you, you get down on just the, the coffee shop hunter level, you know, you, you can get all kinds of different answers on these things. And I'm, I'm always surprised when I really dig into them. Many things are not as they appear. And uh, we'll talk about that here too. And, and uh, I don't want to disappoint anybody on, on APRs, but it, you, you may find they're not exactly what you thought they were. So, so Jeff, let, let, I'm going to let you summarize in your words, what an APR is? What do you define an, an antler point restriction as? Okay. So anytime you hear about a state or an agency doing an antler point restriction, what that is is it's a, a harvest restriction that limits your buck harvest to a certain segment of the buck, buck population. And the most common way of implementing an antler restriction is with a point restriction that being a four point or greater harvest restriction meaning you can't shoot anything smaller than a four point and uh, one thing that's interesting about them is you know traditional western count on a mule deer a four point would not include brow tines Yes, But in the context of an antler point restriction, you can't really legislate that or regulate that. So you have to say uh, a legal point of one inch or greater. So typically on an antler point restriction, a brow tine would be included. So you could have a three by three with a, a brow tine that would actually be a legal four point. And... Another thing to mention is that typically these are on one side, so you don't have to have four points on both sides. It's just one side has to be at least a four point. So what you're trying to do is regulate 
which ones of the bucks are legal to harvest. It's kind of like if you're a fisherman and you look at what they call slot limits on whether or not you could keep fish, where you might be able to keep a fish if it's underneath a certain length or if it's over a certain length or maybe it's in between like a 10 inch and a 15 inch you're just getting more um, confined to what's legal to harvest or take out of a population all right and and you just introduced one of the, one of the complications of it already is is defining it uh, as you were describing it can be a three point with brow tines and that's a four point. So under a four point or better regulation, that buck is harvestable. Until you right. said that, I would have passed that buck up because I'd have been like, "Oh, that's a three point," but it's not right. really three points or four. Yeah. But anyway, so, some of the some of the muddy waters you get into on this, and you know, one one of the one of the hard things about about managing it is 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 defining that, and and we'll talk about this, but also you know making sure people are shooting the right animal and not not leaving an uh, an animal that turned out to be illegal. Um, yeah, and it's you know like anything, it's always important to read the individual states' hunting regulations because Wyoming might define a point differently than Utah or a different state, so that's always really important. Um, but it also brings up something else that's that's difficult, especially with new or young hunters being able to actually identify the number of points on an animal as you're trying to harvest it. It can be very challenging. Sure, sure. I just did a podcast episode last week on judging mule deer, and I spent about five minutes talking about that they don't just stand out in a mowed field and look at you. Uh, right. You know they're they're in their habitat, uh, especially older deer. They're usually around cover. Uh, they're you don't you don't get a look at them as as much as you might dream about. And so it, trying to manage a deer with an antler point restriction and make sure, man, is does he have a brow tine or is that a is that a fork? You know th those are a lot of the challenges this, that come up in this type of stuff. And, and even right. in hunting where there's not a antler point restriction, it's you, you don't always get a great look at them. I, I concur with you on that. And then add in you know an inexperienced hunter, uh, it's it's just going to complicate matters. Um, so with with Wyoming, so you wrote this paper in 2011. Wyoming's had a lot of uh, experience with antler point restrictions since then. Uh, don't quote me on this, but they kind of seem to be the state that's dabbling it in the most right now. Uh, I would agree with that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, they're really they're really using it, and um, you know, some would argue very effectively. Uh, I believe right now in the Wyoming range, there is a three point or better. In correct. all of the subunits in the Wyoming range, that's correct. Correct. Yes. Right. And the and 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 this will make more sense, I think, as we go through the paper. Um, right now could be an effective time to do that because we're coming off of a hard winter and uh, wanting to protect um, younger age class deer because a lot of times those are the deer that are affected by a hard winter. Last year's fawns, so this year's you know spike bucks, two points, small three points. Um, kind of makes sense to to put an APR in on this year and and allow those bucks maybe to get a year older. Am I summarizing that correctly? Yeah, that's the thought. Um, one thing that's really interesting is you dive into uh, the history of use on antler point restrictions is that it's 
actually been more effective to use it on those years when you have really good fawn crops the previous year mm -hmm. so that you're you have a lot of animals to protect mm -hmm. and recruit into the population Whereas on this particular year, we lost 100% of our radio colored fawns from last year. You know, in reality, it, it won't be 100% loss. There are some left, but our sample size was pretty good. We had 100 radio collars on fawns in the Wyoming range. And you're trying to protect something that doesn't exist. And the, the counter argument I guess would be that, you know, you want to protect those few that are there, but biologically over the uh, looking at the whole herd, that's not going to get very much harvest on a year like this. Um, so the years they actually saw the best response from an antler point restriction was when they had good production, maybe so like next year when we hopefully have a lot more fawns if we have a mild winter and i sure hope we do yeah that would be more effective at actually bumping recruitment of bucks than it will be this year and thank you for diving into that because that's what i mean when i say some of this stuff is counterintuitive and i did see right. that in the paper about when you've got a lot of two points a lot of younger age class deer these regulations actually work better yet in the emotional hunter's mind like no you can't shoot the two points there's hardly any out there but from right. a you know biological herd status standpoint that it 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 may not make much of a difference to protect them and what we've seen after almost every hard winter it, it, at least historically hunter participation goes down uh yeah, people go out yeah. And get spanked you know opening day man yeah. nobody saw anything oh god let's go fishing or whatever people do and so that automatically protects a segment of the deer herd right there i've seen that many times yeah, participation goes way down, um, especially in states like Wyoming with general seasons for the residents where, you know, the residents don't need to hunt every year. They don't need to harvest a, a mule deer every year, and commonly they don't. Um, most folks are relying on elk as their food source and to provide meat for their family. And on a year like this, it's very common that they just won't buy a deer license or if they do it's just to go hang out with family and friends and you know if they saw a nice buck that made it through the winter maybe they might harvest it but participation goes down effort goes down and success obviously goes down because um, you know the deer population's down agreed and uh and again one more counterintuitive issue with antler point restrictions right there why they may not always do what we think they're going to do but um the on the paper uh, i'll give the name again for people that want to dig into it it's called a critical review of mule deer antler point regulations application and effectiveness uh you just look it up on google google's really smart uh Je jeff short uh put that in there with it uh spelled just like it sounds and uh you, you should bring it up but for those that aren't going to look it up because i know a lot of you guys you only listen to podcasts you don't actually ever read um, and I know that because I'm kind of the same way. 
uh, I'll, I'll summarize some of the tables that were on on there. And this will take a few minutes for me to read through, and I'm just gonna just give a summary of it for people, so you can you, you, it'll help frame our discussion on where where Jeff and I are coming from on what they actually found in this critical review of APRs. Um, they I, I took from the tables the information on Colorado, Idaho, Utah, Montana and Washington and Oregon. And I'll just go through them real quick here. What they found in Colorado with a four point or better restriction was there was a temporary increase in buck to doe ratios, but there was no improvement in mature buck to doe ratios and no increase in total population. All right, so, so remember that last one, no increase in total population. That's gonna be a common theme as we go through these. In Idaho, they, they 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 did a little different approach because remember what Jeff said. It's it's an antler point restriction is just deciding at some level which animals you're not going to harvest. Idaho actually went with a two point or less, so you couldn't shoot anything bigger than a two point. I remember this. This was with the flip flop of our deer and elk seasons in the early '90s. I believe this was in the Owyhees. Is that correct, Jeff? Is that where that came yeah, from? Yeah, it was. Yeah. yeah, so I remember in the Owyhees that um, uh, they, they you, you couldn't hunt bucks that were bigger than a two-point unless you drew a very hard-to-draw limited quota permit that allowed you to right. hunt in November. Um, and uh, this is what we saw. There was no long-term improvement in buck-to-doe ratios. There was a temporary improvement in mature buck-to-doe ratios, and there was no long-term improvement in population. Now, because I live here— in, I at least knew the word on the street. The Owyhees was the place to be when these regulations came in. But they were magnified by the fact that the, the limited quota portion that where you could hunt any buck, or, or is it three-pointer better, I think is what it was. You, you could hunt into November, clear to the November 24th. Right. So everybody said, oh, all of a sudden we're growing all these big bucks. And I was scratching my head thinking, well, wait a minute, before this regulation came in, we could really only hunt into kind of early, uh, you know, early November, you know, the rut just barely getting going. And then it was, then, then it was cut off. So to me, yeah. it, it felt a little bit of like artificial that all of a sudden we got all these big bucks running around. It's like, no, we're now we're hunting them at a time we can see them. Would, would you dispute that, Jeff, or agree with it? I'd agree with that. And, and one thing that's really interesting to point out with this particular point restriction is this was a completely different motive for implementing a point restriction. This is very similar to a point restriction that's been used in elk populations a lot, mm -hmm. where you have a general spike only season mm -hmm. and then a limited quota hunt for any bull or for bigger bulls. And that's an effort to provide some opportunity to hunters that because those are so hard to draw those limited quota licenses. So this Idaho example of two point or less was, was modeled after that. And partly because we know through radio color studies that a lot of these two point deer have fairly high natural mortality rates. And that if you harvest some of them, you're not, necessarily adding more mortality that you're harvesting some that are going to die anyways. Yes, right. Correct. 
Mm-hmm. Agreed. And and so by 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 having it two point or less, you're still providing some opportunity for people right. who want to go. Uh, yeah. But uh, but allowing people to hunt clear into November because now it's no longer a was it a general season before that? I can't remember. I think it was. I think it was just a general season. I think and, so. You know, probably October, mid October to early November dates, like a lot of Idaho was then. And uh, but but for most people, they felt like it worked. But I always just remembered that any unit, even a poor unit, if I can go hunt from November fifteenth on, I'm probably going to see big bucks. Uh, and, 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 and so that, that was kind of in the soup there of, of the APR. And I believe this APR is still in place 25 years later, whatever we are, 30 years later, uh, is still in place in the Owyhees with this two point or less, and then managed on a limited quota for anything bigger than that. People can fact check me on that, but I'm pretty sure we're still doing it. But remember what the table said. There was no long-term improvement in buck-to-doe ratio, like Colorado. Uh, Colorado had a temporary increase, but not long-term. There was a temporary improvement in mature buck-to-doe ratio, um, no long-term improvement in population. Well, that that mature buck-to-doe ratio, I would would probably attribute that to the conversion to limited quota for uh the larger buck harvest yeah because we went from a a, an otc hunt right outside of boise idaho's biggest population center to a limited quota hunt where hardly anybody could go yeah you could go out there for two points but hardly anybody did they took their kids out there it was no longer a destination unit and uh hunter participation plummeted out there so I'm, right. I'm glad you point that out. You're right. That that improvement in mature buck to doe ratio could just be just a massive drop in hunting pressure. Right. Yep. Idaho also had some units where they did four point or better, similar to what Colorado did. And uh, in, the, in these units, they did see a temporary increase in buck to doe ratios, which was similar to Colorado. To note on this, we're going to talk about this more. They in There was an increased older aged three-point deer on the landscape they, they were more prevalent that right. translate into worse genetics were protected so by saying hey you can only shoot four point or better well every herd's got some three points in it and nobody could shoot those and they became old deer well they're, they're doing the breeding because the four points are getting shot and nobody can shoot those deer because they're three points and it was notable. It must have been significant. It was in the. It was in the. It was in the study that mm-hmm. there were more older age three point deer uh, in in the herd, and we can surmise from that that you know there's, there's more of them. There're going to be more of them passing on their genes, and we saw this in other states too. It's kind of one of the downsides of of APRs. Uh, similar to Colorado, and you're going to notice this in all the tables. There was no long term improvement in population. Okay. We never said that APRs are designed to Im- increase your population of deer, but a lot of people think they do. Like, hey, we're not going to shoot these bucks now. Right. And the deer herd is going to get big. So far, two out of two states, we have not seen that. Jumping into Utah, they did both three-point and four-point or better. And, man, I remember man, back in the day, the 90s, 80s, something like that. It seemed like Utah was go- doing what Wyoming is right now. They were trying a lot of you know, four-point or better, three-point or better. And uh, 
in the table, no long-term improvement in buck-to-doe ratios. So Idaho, no long-term improvement. Colorado, no long-term, well, they had a temporary increase, which means no long-term improvement right. in buck-to-doe ratios. Uh, Utah saw a decrease in mature buck-to-does. We'll talk about why. That's in the paper as well. There was actually a decrease in the deer we were hoping to grow. And now three out of three states, no long-term increase in population. Moving into Montana, they had, uh, like Idaho, they tried two-point or less and four-point or better. In the two-point or less seasons, there was no long-term improvement in buck-to-doe ratio. We're four for four now. Temporary improvement in buck-to-doe ratio, excuse me, in mature buck-to-doe ratio. There was just a temporary improvement in that. And there was no increase in population. On their four-point or better units, there was a temporary increase in buck-to-doe ratio, but I Temporary to me does not mean long-term. There was a decrease in mature buck-to-doe ratio. We saw that in some of the other states, except for Idaho, where they have the limited quota on the older age class bucks. Decrease in mature buck-to-doe ratio. And this, this happened while the total harvest decreased 28%, but mature buck harvest actually increased in this study. Right. And there, there was no increase in population. Um, I didn't break it out for uh, Washington and Oregon because it was like a broken record. It was almost the same. But mm. I, I did jump down to Wyoming because you're from Wyoming and you 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 uh, helped implement this and, and, and this paper and everything. So I really broke it down for Wyoming. They had seven subunits that they studied. Six of them turned out to be similar to the, the above states over the long term, which was, you know, no long-term improvement in buck-to-doe ratio, and at best, a temporary improvement in mature buck-to-doe ratio. Uh, so six of the seven uh, subunits, that was the results. There was one herd in the Cody region that did see improvements in buck-to-doe and mature buck-to-doe beyond two years of the study, but that was attributed to a sampling error. And let, let me read what it says from the paper. The Cody region set four-point or better hunting seasons in the former no-wood mule deer herd, hunt areas 35 and 39, which are now a portion of the Southwest Bighorns mule deer herd, in combination with antlerless deer seasons from 84 to 89, in response to public concerns about low buck-to-doe ratios. Prior to 1984, this herd was managed under a general antlered deer season and 150 to 300 antlerless deer licenses were, were also issued annually. The goal of the four-point or better season was to increase the overall buck-to-doe ratio. The APR season pr prompted a dramatic decline in both hunter numbers and buck harvest, as has also been documented in several other states and other locations in Wyoming. In the no-wood herd, the overall buck-to-doe ratio and proportion of mature bucks actually declined after the APR implementation, but improved as hunter participation fell and harvest success remained low. This season structure was changed back to an any deer season in 1990. These results differ from most reviewed and most reviewed studies and suggest sampling design may have played a role given mule deer interchange and changing distribution. This herd was determined to be a small subpopulation of a much larger herd. So I hope I didn't lose anybody on that. But even though they did see an improvement in the in the buck to doe ratio in time, at first they didn't, but in time they did, it was attributed to sampling error and 
Sounds like Jeff not really being able to study a certain deer herd. Sounds like we had mixing deer coming from other areas. Did I get that right? Right. Yeah. And that's what's complicated when you have a hunting restriction in one hunt area, but you have mule deer migrating across hunt areas because we manage on the herd unit basis for buck to doe ratios and populations. And if those deer are combining together in December, when we measure buck doe ratios, you don't really have a cause and effect type uh, situation with our data to determine what was really going on. And that, that gets pretty complicated. Yes. And, and that's, that's why I wanted to dive into this subject because, you know, a lot of times when I talk to people about APRs, you know, it's the Messiah, you know, they're going to save us. And, uh, right. and a lot of times you really dig into this stuff. And if you, you know, and you follow it out for a few years, not just the year or two or three that, uh, that it started and everything, cause there usually are some shifts in that time, but long-term, you know, it's not always all it's cracked up to be. Um, yeah. And, and one thing that, um, people probably noticed as you're listing off those things from states and examples is temporary increase in buck to doe ratios. And uh, another thing that was also commonly mentioned is reduced hunter participation. And that has really been where APRs have succeeded is when you implement one, but you have other areas around it that don't have an antler point restriction. And there's a certain percentage of the hunting population that just doesn't want to deal with the antler point restriction. Maybe they're meat hunters and they want to shoot a yearling buck, or maybe they don't want to deal with having to identify um, and deal with the consequences. But when hunter participation goes down due to the APR, then you see those temporary increases in buck to doe ratios because you're just seeing less harvest. Yes. And that's, that's typically when people are really excited about them is kind of year one to three, like, wow, look at all these three and four point bucks running around. Yeah. And then our participation year, increases. Yeah. Year four people start hearing about it and they show up. And I know when I worked in Idaho, that was the certainly the situation around Malad. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it was successful for a while, but then people started uh, going down there and hunting that. Heck, I was one of them. <laughs> oh, went, my gosh. Traffic jams on I-15 to try to get down there. I remember. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and then and then it just swung back the other way. Totally went back the other way, you know, and right. and, you know, every. Every four point buck, you know, had a, had a bullet chasing him, um, you know, where before when it was OTC, it was, you know, people weren't paying that much attention to it. And so right. that, that's why I brought up the whole kind of unintended consequences of a lot of these things that we try. And, uh, and, and Jeff, I'm glad you grabbed onto that whole hunter participation thing, because there's a whole movement in the hunting industry right now. Um, I, I tie it to COVID because COVID gave, you know, a lot of free time and a lot of money. 
And uh, we had this spike in hunters over the last couple of years, which just happened to coincide with some states, including yours, getting more restrictive on the non-resident hunter. And uh, people are just feeling like, man, it's all going away. You know, there's hunting is is going to be less, not more. It's it's going to be so hard to get tags. You know, it's just dire. And, right. you know, I'm kind of, I haven't made my mind up. I'm just kind of standing back and watching, you know, we're kind of seeing hunter numbers have leveled back off now, you know, as, as people have had to go back to work and, you know, things like that. Um, it's complicated because, uh, you know, states of all, like Idaho, they've changed how they distribute their non-resident tags. And it basically made every non-resident tag a draw tag now. Um, right. And so that's what, it, you know, there's a big line of people on December 1st trying to get them. Uh, but my, my whole point is, is that, when we decrease hunter participation, there's a whole cohort of, of people out there that are, you know, they, bravo, yeah, yay, there are too many hunters. We don't want them. I don't care if I don't hunt deer for five years. I just want to hunt a trophy deer every five years, and which, by the way, guys, never materializes because point creep gets you. But, you know, they're they're happy about decreased hunter participation. But I'm, I'm, I'm always right. kind of standing back looking at the long term like – well, yeah, I don't want to see a whole bunch of people when I'm out there hunting, but luckily I grew up in the 80s when there truly was a whole bunch of people hunting. And I feel like right now, <laughs> with any effort at all, I can get to where I don't, I can just, see, I mean, maybe not on opening day, but after opening day, I can go to where I can just see a, a few and even some places, no hunters after opening day. So to me, I'm not hitting the panic button, but when we're coming up with, with all these regulations to decrease hunter participation, something has to give, and you just nailed one of the things that has to give. And that is that people flock, you didn't use that word, but move to other units. And, and, and I've talked about Idaho's unit 56 on this podcast a lot because it, 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 it's a good sample of what happens when you go in and you take um, a, a general season unit out of the pool and try to grow big bucks and uh, the, the the repercussions to surrounding units. And, and an APR can be a way to try to grow big bucks. In fact, for most people, that's exactly what it is. And in Idaho's hmm. Unit 56, you probably remember this, Jeff. I, um, we, we took it out of the out of the OTC rotation, put it into limited quota, and right. we started growing big bucks, remember? I mean, right. David Anderson, he, man, he shot a big old buck down there. And I mean, all of us wanted to go down there. And man, I would go down there and scout. I'd see really good bucks and everything. But, you know, in the early uh, 2004 or five, uh, kudos to the Pocatello biologists, they saw that, hey, this is affecting these other surrounding units, you know, 73, 73A, um, you know, 46, you know, pushing hunters out of, out of this unit and the other units are paying the price. Mm. And I, I still remember the, the the meeting in Pocatello when they said, we're taking 56 out of limited quota and putting it back into OTC. It was notable to me because I re never remember a Western state doing that. It was always the opposite. Right. You know, yeah, no, more yeah. limited quota, more limited quota, less licenses, less licenses. And um, – and, and and they did that, and 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 you know I I did like the quality that was in '56, but it, it was to the point of so what? We're growing a bunch of big bucks down there. I'll never get to go there. That's why I always warn guys when they're saying, oh, just 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 put everything on limited quota. I would rather hunt a big buck once every ten years than than you know hunt no big bucks every year. And, and like that's why I say, well, it never really pans out because you don't even get to hunt them every ten years. And then right. in '56, they they took that out, they put it in into the limited uh, back into the OTC. 
And it just kind of settled things down down there to me. It didn't feel like there was this big mass migration into these other units. And, you know, nobody could go over to the, you know, the chocolate factory across the road there. You know, that was for the limited quota guys. Um, and so my whole point in saying all this is something has to give when we lim limit hunter participation. Something gives somewhere. And and we always have, we need to think about what those consequences are. Yeah, that's an excellent point. And, and I don't think it's any secret to anybody in wildlife management or to most hunters that the way to increase the number of bucks and the number of big bucks is to limit opportunity to go limit a quota. I don't think that's a secret, but there are extreme ramifications to that, to your opportunity and uh, especially new hunters, young hunters, opportunities to get interested in deer hunting. And, um, you know, like you said, point creep, things like that. Do you ever draw it? Um, if you don't hunt deer for five years, do you know how to hunt deer good enough to actually find and harvest one of those big deer? And these are all social decisions that deer hunters have to make about what they want management to do. They have absolutely no effect on population trajectory, anything. This is all about just buck ratios and how many bucks are out there. It, it does not change the deer population at all. Every everything I summarized in every single table, that's what it came up with. There was no long-term yeah. increase. And, and and I've never heard a biologist try to sell it as that ever, but I sure mm -hmm. hear a lot of public uh, say that, you know, we're going to have yeah. a lot more big bucks, which, you know, they're saying we're going to have an increase in deer population. Not really. That's not what we're seeing. And if right. we, if we do, it, it's temporary. So, um, you know, having said that though, Jeff, I know that, that you know, Wyoming's going that direction. <laughs> I don't want to put you in an odd position here, but you know, wh wh why is Wyoming sticking to their guns? Have they found a way to, cause I, the way I understand it, they, they roll these regulations in and out as needed. So have right. they found a good balance here on, Hey, this is how to get the, get the good part of it without getting the ugly. Yeah. So they, these regulations aren't all bad they do have some merit if you use them responsibly and one of the ways that Wyoming looks at it is we have objectives for our buck doe ratios and in, in all of our herds across the state and we categorize those hunt areas um, by the herd unit basis as either recreational management where we have a buck doe ratio objective of between 20 and 30 and we also have other herd units that we manage as special management so those areas will have an objective of having the buck doe ratio between 30 and 40. so if we see a situation where we're dropping below objective in those herd units we can implement a antler point restriction for a short period to try to bump that up and get back within the objective range so that's why wyoming is using them and and trying to use them just on a short-term basis in most 
most areas in the state. Unfortunately, we do have some places that have had really, really adamant public support to leave these regulations in place permanently. Mm-hmm. And we've got some places that we've had point restrictions for 16, 17 years without any break. And that's where I start to get really concerned about long-term effects of that regulation. Yeah, because we know from everything we summarized in this paper, and there's other information out there that lines up with it, that that long-term you end up back to, you said it somewhere in the paper, you end up putting all the pressure on the deer that you're, that, that, that hunters desire for okay. point or better. And, 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 and that's, that, that's what, what complicates this. I, I find the same with bucks only hunting, Jeff. I mean, it was, I think it was Ted Chu. You remember Ted. Oh yeah. That, that finally explained that to me. You realize what we're doing when we have bucks only hunting. You are only hunting the animals that you, Robbie Denning, want. That's what you're right. making everybody yeah. hunt those. And, 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 and I think we were talking about it more in the context of, you know, allowing antlerless hunts. Cause you know, I was like a lot of, hunters, oh, no, can't shoot the mamas. Don't shoot the mamas, you know? And, and, and he helped me understand that, you know, and when you can, you can't always shoot antlerless deer. Uh, but when you can, you're taking pressure off of the bucks. It was like right. an aha moment. And I'm still talking about it 30 years later. And, and, and so kind of the same thing with, 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 with antler point restrictions. I want people to understand when we say four point or better, if you're a big buck hunter, remember you just made everybody, every grandma, every cousin that never goes deer hunting, that's just tagging along that year and bought a tag, every little kid, every meat hunter that doesn't even care about antlers. You're making every one of them a air quote trophy hunter. And I, to me, in its simplest form, that's why these don't do long-term what a lot of people think they're going to do. I understand your case you just explained for Wyoming. They're using it to mi- manipulate sex ratios, buck-to-doe ratios, and, right. and, and, and in the short term, and used effectively, rolling them in, rolling them out. Sounds like it's working. Yeah, it, it definitely, especially when we have fawn production, can bump our buck-to-doe ratios. And once we get back up into the objective range, we try to reduce the use of those and let people hunt all bucks. Yeah, and it's just like taking the handcuffs off. It's like, awesome. Let's just go. I remember when they did that down by Malad. It was like just crazy how many people wanted to go. But again, it was, you know, we kept our thumb, our, our thumb on the pressure for so long that Anyways, d- different subject. Go ahead, Jeff. So one thing I like to use to explain it, you know, when you're talking about you're putting all the harvest pressure on what you want to grow more of, four point bucks in this example. Well, just imagine if uh, you like to eat M&Ms, but you only like to eat blue M&Ms. And <laughs> that's all you'll eat. Well, you're going to run out of blue M&Ms pretty quick. Great example. That's right. You're, 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 you're only going to be left with the ones that you don't want. And, and that was really interesting in this paper. And I had not thought about that, that over long term, if you're shooting every four point buck, you're allowing what, and, and to me, this is, you know, this is a, a, a social 
measurement, but in inferior genetic bucks, because some of us like big three-point bucks, but right. inferior genetic bucks compared to the Boone and Crockett, which awards, you know, four points, even brow tines, all that stuff. You're allowing right. those inferior genetic bucks to be protected. You're protecting that deer. And over a long period of time, you can have a significant number of those bucks in the population doing the breeding, passing on that Correct. that gene and i didn't really think about it that way that, yeah. that yeah that that could happen i can't remember which state like they documented it at a significant level it was actually i think the public was complaining about it like wow we have a yeah. lot of old three points now yeah so with protecting those older age class air quotes inferior genetic bucks that's another unintended consequence uh, of this and i saw that you noted that in your paper correct and the other thing that a lot of people don't think about with this, it's not quite as intuitive, is you're also protecting inferior genetics at the young age level as well. So imagine if you have a three-pointer better season, which is a, a common one to use as well, where in my part of Wyoming, we have pretty good genetics and we have pretty good habitat. So um, these bucks grow pretty quick. And we have about 20 to 25% of our yearling bucks that are actually legal three points at one year old. And those are the best of the best genetic potential deer you have, but they are legal to harvest with the three-point season so you're putting all of your harvest pressure on those deer that you would be better off protecting in the long run and the same thing will happen with the four-point season as deer become two-year-olds there's a certain percentage of those that are going to have that potential to grow into a four-point remember with the, the way the, the regulations are written, it could be a three-point, a small three-point with a brow tine, and it'll be a legal four-point. There's just really no other way to write these regulations without doing that. Defining where the point would be doesn't really work. So you're putting pressure on those genetics that you want more of. And that's why I wanted to do this podcast. So people that un can understand that could be an unintended, it is an unintended consequence of um, ag aggressive antler point restrictions, especially left in place for, for years and years and years. And so, um, yeah, imagine if you have a meat hunter that's just, you know, on an opportunity hunt wants to, to, to take a deer home and there's two deer standing there. They're both yearlings. Uh, one of them's a two point and the other one's a three point. I mean, he legally can only harvest the one mm -hmm. that he would rather that deer turn into a six or seven year old mm -hmm. if you're looking for trophy buck production. So that's, that's pretty counterproductive now. If you think about it, 50% of the antler potential of a fawn still comes from the doe. And these regulations don't have any impact into the genetics of the doe. So there is a cushion there. But I, I get concerned when you start running these regulations for 10, 15, 20 years that you could start having a, an impact 
on that. And even even though they're the bucks are only providing fifty percent of those genetics, that's something I don't think we want to be doing with these regulations. Oh, I I agree. I I wholeheartedly agree on that. Is um, I talked about that with uh, Dr. Randy Larson from from BYU about mm. um, you know the the, the the genetics and you know that 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 we have this cushion. It you know you can't really totally shoot the genetics out of a herd um, unless you kill all the does too because they're in there. But when you know, like you just said, 10, 15, 20 years of of a regulation, you know that you're definitely going to see. The, the the bucks that survive their genetics expressed more often and if people are yeah. really interested in growing high scoring deer then you're working against yourself on this with with long-term implementation of these and another problem with long-term implementation you get this generational i don't know if entitlement's the word but it's like the public is, hey, it's always been this way, so it needs to stay this way. So then it gets really hard to change. That's why I always yes. bring up Unit 56, because I think that regulation yes. was in place for 15 years, you know, getting close to a generation. And they still were able to to, to, to pull it off. And, you know, they weren't popular for doing it, but they, they were able to, you know, change some thinking. Same thing happened with our flip-flop of our deer and elk seasons in 91. You know, I remember poor Ted Chu just getting the heck beat out of him at these public meetings. But, you know, when, when the public is used to something for so long, even if you, even if it is better to change and you have the data for it, it's very hard to convince people. That is a, an excellent point. And that's exactly the situation we're in, in my district here in Southwest Wyoming is we implemented some of these for good intentions. And there's actually written reports. If you go back and look that, that we intended to leave them in for two or three years and then take them out. But the public got used to it, decided they thought it was a good idea and will not let us remove those regulations. And it's, it's really gotten difficult, especially when we have a tough winter and um, deer herds are down like we're experiencing right now. There's absolutely no public support to to get rid of a regulation like that when it is perceived as a liberalization of the deer hunting regulation, mm -hmm. if that makes right. sense. Yeah, they would they think don't. if you took it out now that, oh my gosh, you're you're putting even more pressure on them. Yes. And according to your example early in the podcast, maybe not. You might not right. put more 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 pressure on them when the when the when the APRs work on these these four three point or four point or better is when you have a lot of two points coming up through the age classes or coming into that age class and we don't have that right now. Right. Yeah. So it's been really difficult. Um, you know, ever since the 2016 winter, we've been really stuck because we had a bad winter in 1617. We had another one in 1819, another one in 1920. And then this totally awful one in 22, 23, we just not have, have not been able to change that season at all. Yeah. Cause uh, some of these things that we've talked about today, when, when really right now changing it might make the most sense. Right. Well, for any podcast followers that are in Southwest Wyoming, 
you know, share this with your friends. Have an open mind. Uh, that's all I ask people to do. Have an open mind. I'm not saying I have all the answers, neither is Jeff, but have an open mind. And just because we've been doing something for a long, long time does not necessarily mean it's the right thing to do. It was like grandma cutting off the ends of the pot roast and then her daughter cut off the ends of the pot roast and the other daughter cut off the ends of the pot roast. And pretty soon it was like, that's how you cook a pot roast. When they went back and asked grandma, she said, no, no, that was, I cut the ends off because I only had that size of pan. And so you, you just get entrenched in this, in this stuff for years. And yet when we stand back at 10,000 feet, I think everybody will agree mule deer are on their, on their heels right now. Um, could just be winners, you know, could be a long-term, we don't know, but keep an open mind, learn people. That's what we're trying to do here. That's why we got people like Jeff Short on the podcast today of the Wyoming Game and Fish to, 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 to kind of pull back the curtain and look at some of these, these things behind the scenes and do they do what we think they're going to do. Um, something else that was in your paper too, Jeff, um, I called it walkaways. Um, what I mean by that is in these APR units, if it's, you know, say three point or better and, you know, Fred blasts a buck. He only just got a quick look at him. Um, and, you know, but he was big, you know, and then he gets right. over there and, oh my gosh, this is a, this is a, this is a two point or it, you know, uh, it doesn't meet the regulations in some of these studies. I can't remember which States that was a notable part of the harvest. A significant part of the harvest was, was these walkaways, people just leaving these deer. That's problematic. Yes, it is. And that's been documented in pretty much every state and Canadian province that's tried antler point restrictions. Uh, we, we've documented it pretty extensively in this part of Wyoming. It's, it's a big issue. Um, you know, a responsible hunter, if they make a mistake like that, they really just need to dress the animal out and call their local game warden and try to get it resolved. And that's going to be the best situation for everybody. Um, but we unfortunately have people that are just leaving them out there to waste. And it's a lot more common than you'd think. You bet. And then, and, and it's just one more reason why APRs may not do what we think they're going to do because, you know, now we're, you know, we're shooting the bucks we're supposed to protect, you know, that's going against everything that it was designed to do. But I'm with right. Jeff, you know, I, I just, I can't speak for the game wardens, but I've been around a lot of them, a lot of them. They're pretty dang reasonable and right. just yeah. giving them a call and letting them know what you did. Can't say you won't get a ticket, but I guarantee it's going to go better than if you just walk away from it. And remember, even when you walk away from it, you can still get turned in. There's plenty of people oh, in the yeah. woods to turn you in. And you're yeah. you're, you're going to fare better just owning up to it. And then in the least, in the least, that meat is going to be uh, harvested and and used. And they may not let you use it, but, but you know, it just, right. it, 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 two wrongs is not going to make a right. And so glad you bring that up, Jeff. Dress them out call the game warden, that kind of stuff. But the bigger picture of the whole APRs is this is going on at some level. People are accidentally shooting deer. We've seen this in the spike elk seasons. And, and that's what I was going to ask you, Jeff. I mean, it's, it's, it's can be a significant part of the harvest, but is it, some people say it's just the price of doing business. You know, yeah, yep, you're going to lose a few. You're going to shoot some that you shouldn't. And unfortunately, some hunters are going to walk away with it. Uh, I doubt you agree with that, but what are your thoughts on that when people say that? 
No, I don't agree with that. Uh, you know, sometimes there's there's things that we do in wildlife management and hunting where um, for the greater good, you might do things that are unpalatable, but, you know, just accepting uh, waste and illegal take like that. I don't, I don't think that there is uh, room for that or need for that. And I don't see the benefit that you're trading for it either. Yeah. That's, that's how I look at it too. I don't see the benefit of it. And, and in this day and age with, you know, even young hunters, you know, we got such great optics, even, even low, low level optics, you know, you can, you, you can identify antlers if you take the time and, or just the age old pass them up. If you don't know, I mean, that's, right. that's really what it gets down to. And, and that is, that is when an APR is doing what it's supposed to do. You're actually passing up bucks. Um, right. So anyways, I did, I just did notice that that was, that was, you know, well, well versed in the data that, you know, walkaways are a problem and that that's mm. something for people to think about. Um, the Rockcast is powered by Onyx Hunt, the number one hunting GPS app in the industry. Join the millions of hunters who trust Onyx to find more game, discover new access and hunt smarter. Some of the key features of Onyx are the ability to combine critical land data with on-the-ground exploration to build your perfect map and find success. All your save markups sync automatically to all devices for use in the field or from home. Onyx includes nationwide public and private land boundaries. Hunt with confidence and find new opportunities using color-coded public land maps, private parcel ownership information, and clearly marked boundaries. Mark locations crucial to your hunt with custom waypoints. Measure distances of your walk-in, shot across canyon, or distance to the nearest access point with lines. View maps in 3D and choose satellite, topo, or hybrid base maps to have the best easy-to-read visual for your hunt. Go as far from the grid as you want. No cell service required. Save detailed maps, layers, and markups for offline use. With live tracking, and current location features, you'll make it out and back just like you planned. Don't risk getting turned around or lost. So if you're ready to make the jump to Onyx, use the code ROCKCAST at checkout and save yourself 20%. You wanted to cover concerning APRs. Yeah, you touched on it quite a bit, but uh, the fact that mule deer populations are struggling right now is pretty widespread across their range. We've got a lot of mule deer populations that aren't performing the way that we'd like them to. And there's probably 50 to 100 different things that are affecting that. And several of the big ones are outside of human control. And from what I've seen, a lot of times the public wants a quick fix and they want to be able to just say, well, implement a point restriction and it'll fix everything and or go limit a quota and it'll fix everything and i think the thing to keep in mind is that the way that we hunt buck mule deer has no impact on population growth population size anything like that most western states aren't hardly shooting any doe mule deer at all so these populations from a hunting management standpoint are free to grow as much as they can so i i understand that folks are frustrated that they're looking for a quick fix but uh, 
sometimes these quick fixes can do more harm than good. Yes, and that's why we want to have these discussions because, you know, if we're just moving the coconut shells around, you know, all of a sudden we're an old man and, you know, our hunting career is over and we did all these things and it didn't really change anything because it's, yeah. the, it's, it, it, it's, the, it's the population that the population level that we got to work at. And, and I'm assuming, you know, you're, you're talking about, you know, habitat and, you know, all the things like that, that are out of human control somewhat, as, you know, as far as precipitation patterns and, you know, those type right. of things. Um, but, you know, what, what, what can't, what is within human control, Jeff, I guess is where I'm trying to go with that. Well, big picture was there's not a cookbook or cookie cutter approach that you can do with all mule deer herds. There is a lot of different things that are affecting places like mule deer populations where I live in Western Wyoming are heavily influenced by winter severity. You know, we also have impacts from if we have a drought in the summer that reduces our, our fawn recruitment, but really the thing that's limiting these populations are how much snow we get, how long those winters are that's out of our control. But there, there really is 50 to a hundred different things that we're working on constantly to try to make things better for mule deer or, unfortunately trying to make it so things don't get worse um you know looking at trying to protect migration routes trying to improve habitat trying to do projects that are long-term habitat projects that you might not see the benefit of for 20 plus years so there's certainly a lot of things that all states are doing to try to make things better for mule deer um, this APR example is is a very interesting example to me because it's been tried for so long. If you look back, people have tried antler point restrictions with mule deer hunting clear back to the 70s, and they've been tried in pretty much every state and Canadian province that has mule deer. And as you look at those, you can pretty much see the same result in all those places and in the introduction <clears throat> that i read to the podcast from your paper that it, uh, it said that uh let's see the preponderance of evidence suggests landscape scale change in habitat since the 1950s are the leading cause uh, in mule deer decline numbers is what what we we're referring to there with no jurisdiction right. being excluded from the decline um during the post-1950s era, significant change occurred in both predator and hunter management. The declines in the quality and quantity and quality of mule deer habitats are generally considered to be the major driving force. And so that's why I'm always about like, hey, let's, you know, let's do all we can with the habitat. That's really the only long game we have right. to, to grow in these populations. And uh, while we can't do a whole lot about the weather, uh, where there mule deer foundation is is you know i'm a big supporter i'm a lifetime member you know we we, we got to have groups out there like that and 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 a big part of what they do is is improving habitat um and making sure the right people are controlling the habitat jeff you were here in my region and you know i i would say the tex creek wildlife management area is a is a is a beacon of success 
you know, I remember working up there with, with, with Paul in the early nineties, you know, fixing fence and everything. And, and he would, he said, you know, when Idaho falls is booming, you know, 20 years from now, he says, we're going to be so glad that we own all this habitat up there. And by we, I mean, you know, fishing game entered into agreements where, where they could, you know, purchase, uh, private land that was going to be sold and, uh, you know, a, a big, long, drawn-out process. But fishing Game owns or controls, a, you know, thousands of acres up there. And, boy, I'm glad we do now, looking at Idaho right. Falls. There's, you know, it's, it's giant around here. There's still no homes up there. There's no subdivisions. There's no nothing. It's just winter range. And uh, yeah, to those, me, that's Those are decisions that were made decades and decades ago that are – really paying dividends now that those folks hunters and sports persons and, and and wildlife managers were smart enough to see the writing on the wall and try to protect some of that stuff for mule deer in the future that's why i call it the long game because that's that's the only thing that's paying off and i mean i'm throwing everything into that aprs limited quota you know heavy uh, predator management all of that stuff it's kind of short-term fixes and right. it runs its course pretty fast. Um, but, you know, owning and manipulating the habitat to the benefit of, of mule deer. Um, and when I say owning, I just mean making sure that it, it, it stays under ownership that wants to protect it. And you mentioned the migration corridors and stuff like that. You know, we can't own everything, but, you know, I know there's been easements uh, agreed with on landowners that are, are not going to, you know, they're, better fencing, you know, better grazing in this area, whatever it is, those type yeah. of things long-term, that's what helps our deer. Right. Yeah. There's a lot of great partnerships going on with private lands, uh, especially with some of that migration route and corridor work. Um, you know, we're doing projects that benefit ranchers by replacing fence and benefit <clears throat> deer by uh, building wildlife friendly fence when we replace it and there's just a lot of positive stuff going on out there but it's it's long-term stuff it's not stuff that's going to fix it for next year or even five years out it's 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 the long game and that's why a lot of the public are just you know meh you know, they're not, it, it's not that exciting to them. It's not sexy. Like, Hey, we just made right. the, like, I hear this all the time, you know, make the Wyoming range, you know, all limited quota, even for residents. I hear it all the time. And, and right. I just caution people. I'm like, yeah, you probably would grow a bunch of big bucks if you took a significant amount of pressure off of that segment of the herd. But now go to the back of the line because you're not going to get a tag. And, you know, the way, yeah. the way the internet is now and information travels, that will go to, 10 to 20 points for residents in the blink of an eye. And and, yeah. and and now we've got all this decreased hunter participation. Somebody's got to buy licenses to pay you guys, you know, and and and, and, and then, you know, the whole thing, people are like, oh, well, you know, we're not paying enough. You know, you shouldn't be able to buy a deer tag for 30 bucks. You know, residents should pay 300. Oh, well, <laughs> bye-bye hunting. You know, when you're, when you're going to do that, that's, that's going to go away too, because, you yeah. know, we're, we're trying to win over the guy that's, uh, you know, Travis Hobbs, the, the, the co-host on this podcast is always talking about, we need those weekend warriors, those guys that are, you know, they're not participating at a high level, but they buy the licenses, you know, their harvest isn't all that high. You know, they don't take a lot from the resource. And once you go to, well, and, and go ahead, think, think of it 
bigger picture too. You need that person to vote. Mm-hmm. You need that person to to not turn into a golfer and and not get jaded by hunting as just a rich man's sport. You need that person's support in the polls. And you know, it may may sound ridiculous for somebody in Wyoming to think that there could be a ballot initiative that outlaws deer hunting. But you talk to people in California and Oregon, and that's that's not uh, unheard of. Oh, not at all. So you need those people to support hunting in that regard. And, you know, you bring up the Wyoming range, and that's a, that's a really interesting herd because we can still produce deer there and high buck doe ratios and high trophy buck numbers with a general season if we get the weather we need. Mm-hmm. So between... 2011 and 2016 we did not have a bad winter during that five-year period and we had that herd up to carrying capacity on the summer range in 2015 and 16 we were cranking out deer uh 200 inch bucks were getting killed all in all parts of that mountain range it was phenomenal and nobody was complaining we didn't have any real issues because there was lots of deer and you just need the weather to do that. And I think that's, that's one thing that gets people fixated on some of these rules and regulations. Uh, And I've heard this a lot that um, some of the older hunters that hunted in the seventies and eighties will say, well, we had a four point restriction in the seventies and the hunting was great. So you need to do that again. Mm -hmm. Well, well, the hunting was good because of the conditions. Mm-hmm. You know, there was, we still had tough winters in the 70s and 80s, but you had one in like 72, another one in 78, one in 83, and then you didn't have a real bad one again until 93. Mm-hmm. And that grows a lot of deer. Mm-hmm. Plus, it was raining in the summertime. And it doesn't matter what you did for your, your buck hunting restrictions when you have that good of production and recruitment of fawns to to create more bucks you're going to have good deer hunting and so i I guess i'd caution people to get fixated on uh one little regulation and thinking that that's going to be the answer yep and and i throw limited quota into that as well that, that, you know, a lot of people yeah. think that's the holy grail. That's what's going to save deer hunting. And well, when we go down that path, if that's what's going to save deer hunting, then the next, the next tool is now we can't give, I think everybody, I think we agree there's seven to 10,000 hunters in the Wyoming range. Well, now we can only give 3,500 tags and well, the deer herd's not doing very well. Now we're going to give 3,000 and now we're going to give 2,500 and now we're down to 20 tags. I mean, that's where that's headed. That's where that heads. Yeah. If we're not. Um, addressing the root cause of the problem, which, as this paper so wisely said, and so many other things I've read, it, 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 it's, it's getting the habitat functioning. Not a lot we can do about the weather, but there's a lot we can do about preserving habitat, preserving migration corridors, supporting the Mule Deer Foundation, you know, habitat manipulation, you know, everything from controlling you know, noxious weeds. Goodness, that's the elephant in the room. Nobody even thinks about it, especially on lower elevation stuff. You know, there's like, there's, there, there's a lot of long game stuff in 
in there. That sounds like you, you right. and I agree on this stuff that, that that's, what's going to move the needle for, for the next generation. And for the hunters that don't care about the next generation, I don't know what to tell you guys. If it's just all about you and I don't want to see any hunters when I go and there's too many hunters, there needs to be less hunters. Um, I, I, I go back to what Jeff just said, that it is not out of the realm. And I think we're going to see it in our lifetime, especially in our, in our, in our uh, coastal states, you're going to see a ban on deer hunting at some level, whether it's a county, a unit, uh, whatever it is, it's coming. It's coming. We've seen it with bears and, um, you know, a lot of people think deer are really cute and, uh, you know, and and so strong hunter numbers are what, um, are, 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 are hedge against that. And, you know, so for the guys that say, no, it doesn't matter. Hunter numbers can be fractional and it doesn't matter if they get even smaller. I just don't dare go down that road because there's no turning back once they come after hunting. And, um, you know, uh, another organization, HAL, H-O-W-L, they're, they're an organization we support. They're on the front lines all the time fighting these issues in different states. And, um, John Stallone, um, and, and Charles running, I can't remember Charles' last name. And they've both told me, oh, it's hunter numbers. When we win these battles, it's because we have a lot of hunter support. And so if I got to yeah. take hunter numbers to such a low level that it's just me and one other guy on the mountain, uh, who's going to defend hunting when they come after it? So I'm kind of getting on a rant there, Jeff, but, but that's yeah. why I, I want to have these discussions and what can we do? Because there's no better way to improve your draw odds than improve your deer herd. That that will decrease point creep, all that stuff. When you start putting more deer on the ground, more fawns getting born, more fawns being recruited into the older age classes, um, that's when hunting gets better. Jeff just gave you the example of 14, 15, 16. I remember talking to you, Jeff, in 16, and uh, this was before the winter came. And you even told me, you said, hey, some of these numbers that we're seeing, you had just come from that big workshop you guys do every year. I can't remember what what uh, organization where all the Western states get together. What's that called? It's a deer and elk workshop put on by WAFA, Western Association for Fish and Wildlife Agencies. Yeah, I remember you telling me you had just come back from that. You're like, hey, <clears throat> we might be hitting carrying capacity right now in these ranges because we've actually seen the deer numbers peak. And I don't remember if it was sex ratios or fawn to doe ratios. I don't remember, but you're like, we're actually seeing it kind of turn back down now, which usually tells us that, hey, they've kind of maximized the habitat. Yeah. There's no more left for them. And, yeah. you know, that's when antlerless hunting makes sense, you know, all of this stuff. And and then sure enough, it wasn't six months later that that winter of 16, 17 hit. And I can't remember what we have, Jeff, over 40,000 deer in the Wyoming range then. It was it was just under forty thousand deer. Just under forty and kind of peaking and and then yep. and then sure enough, the winter took it back down. And then we've got into this bad cycle. You know, you just named all the oh. hard winters, 16, 17, 18, 19, 19, 20, you know, in various parts, not everywhere. Right. And then this this one, which was almost, you know, intermountain west wide, you know, that there's just a lot of things going against them. Yeah. Yeah. And and one thing I tell people is would the winter of 22-23 have not happened if we were little limited quota? Or would it have not happened if we made a, an antler point restriction or something like that? You know, look at the big picture and right. see, um, you know, what what's actually affecting the deer herd in, in your backyard. That's right. That's right. Um, well, great. Any other points you want to cover? No, I think we've uh, covered it pretty good. 
All right. Um, uh, so for those those people that are out there that are wanting to geek out on this, there's there's another paper. Jeff just mentioned them. It was published by the Western Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies and the Mule Deer Working Group with the Mule Deer Foundation. Um, you you can you can Google that, and they have a summary sheet. I think we call that a fact sheet. Is that right, Jeff? Yeah, the Mule Deer Working Group has a bunch of fact sheets. Really good, short, easy to read, two page documents typically that cover a lot of different um, high interest subjects on mule deer management. Great. So Google's pretty smart. Look that stuff up and uh, just keep yeah. an open mind. Keep your emotion low and your knowledge high and you'll make good decisions as, as, as a hunter. And um, uh, Jeff, I'm just going to kind of read your final summary here. It's just a couple paragraphs from the APR and then we'll wrap up the podcast. Sounds good. Okay, so from uh, from Jeff's paper, uh, the maximum benefit of a four-point season is typically realized after the season has been in place two or three years, at which time most four-point bucks are being harvested. Thereafter, the buck-to-doe ratio does not continue to increase, and fewer bucks actually survive to grow truly large antlers. Over the long term, persistently targeting large bucks may also eliminate desirable genetics from the population. If the objective is to produce more large deer, the four-point restriction must be lifted after two years so harvest is once again spread over more age classes. This allows more of the incoming cohort of four-point bucks to survive to an older age and potentially grow much larger antlers. Should the overall buck-to-doe ratio again decline to an unacceptably low level, the four-point season can be reinstated for another two to three years to augment the number of bucks in the population, and the process is repeated. Permanent four-point seasons do not produce more large bucks and actually reduce the harvestable surplus because some of the younger bucks that could have been harvested will die from other causes before they grow four-point antlers. In addition, some small bucks are mistaken for legal bucks and are illegally killed and abandoned. Those deer represent a resource that is lost from the population and impact hunter opportunity in the future years. Couldn't say it better myself there, Jeff. There's the good, bad, and the ugly of APR. And we sure appreciate you coming on the podcast and kind of diving into some of these finer points of your research. Yeah, thanks for having me. You bet. Let's do it again sometime. I know you're a, a busy guy. Um, uh, go out there and count us some antelope, catch us some bears, and grow us some deer, okay? All right, will do. Okay, buddy. Thank you. You bet.